I bet all of you wish that there was more kids here today because <laughs> that would mean that there was more cookies for all the rest of us. <clears throat> Thank you, Jessica. Great job. Thank you very, very much. These science experiments have been pretty cool. Uh, they've increased uh, most of our attentiveness as adults also. And so thank you very much. Uh, Alyssa is the one that kind of organized that whole thing at the beginning, but also many of the rest of you that have been willing to pitch in and be a part of doing those science experiments together with the kids. That's been fantastic. It's been a little treat for us during the summer months. <clears throat> Let's pray together before we start. God, thank you so much for being here with us and, and for knowing us, uh, for seeing into our hearts and into our minds and uh, understanding uh, what our thoughts are and understanding what our feelings and emotions are and, uh, and speaking to those by your Holy Spirit inside of us. Thank you so much. Uh, we just submit ourselves to you and we trust that you are going to uh, teach us and allow us to uh, uh, understand a little bit more of your word uh, this morning as we spend this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know uh, how many of you still follow a little bit of the uh, Winnipeg Jets during the off-season. Um, I don't know how keen you are, uh, but I am kind of interested in, uh, in what is going on, where things are at when it comes to them signing some of the uh, good young players that they've got on their team, some of them whose contracts have expired and they're going to need new contracts before the next season starts. Um, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see if they're going to find a way to negotiate salaries with all of them and bring them all back again. Some of the good young talent actually has already been traded away. But one of the things that we have heard said about the Winnipeg Jets the past few seasons by sports announcers is that the Winnipeg Jets are serious Stanley Cup contenders. Now, I can't help but wonder uh, if that will continue to be the case because of some of the signing stuff and trading away some of the good young talent and needing to let go of some of it because of not being able to afford all of these uh, good young players. I, I can't help but wonder, will the Winnipeg Jets continue to be legitimate Stanley Cup contenders? And now we can debate the answer to that question another time, and I'm willing to do that with you at some point if you would like. Uh, but what I wanted to do was I wanted to just uh, plant a little seed in your minds and get you to begin to think a little bit about the definition and the implication of the word to contend. What does it mean to be a contender? Or to contend. Keep that in your minds as we begin the introduction and as we begin to work our way through another little book in the Bible. Those of you that have been here, have been listening to the podcast, you know that we've kind of been doing a little series throughout the month of July and now into August. Some of the short little books of the Bible, the ones that we don't look at very often or maybe read very often or talk about very often here in church. And so uh, Jesse has done a great job of taking us through several of those already. And I want to, today and next Sunday, I want to look together with you at the little book of Jude. Uh, one chapter... It's the last book before the last book in the Bible. And so it's the last book before the book of Revelation. If you're looking for it, you're going to look way back in your Bibles just before 
the book of Revelation. Now let me read the first two verses for you. It's kind of the introduction. It's the way a lot of books similar to the way a lot of the letters in the Bible start. And I'm going to read the first two verses for you. Jude, and we don't really have to say chapter 1, but verse 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Now that's a very similar introduction to the introductions that you're going to find in many of the letters in the Bible. Many of those that were written by Paul have kind of a similar type of an introduction. It's kind of interesting the way they start their letters back in those days. Uh, first of all, saying who it is that's writing the letter, and then they say who they're writing it to, and usually there's a little bit of detail about each, just giving a little bit of a snippet, a little bit of extra detail about the writer, and a little bit of extra detail about the people or the person that it's being written to, and then often there's just a little hint as to what the content of the letter might, or the tone or the mood of the letter might be all about. And so here again, Jude does that as he begins the letter. Now, I want to leave the details or talking about this little introduction for next Sunday. So we're going to kind of put the little introduction on the shelf. We're going to come back to that next Sunday because it kind of goes together well with the last part or the, the ending of the letter. And so we're going to do the beginning few verses that we just read and the ending next Sunday. Today we're going to talk about all the stuff that's in between. So follow me to the next little section of verses here in chapter 3, or in uh, chapter 1, of course, verses 3 to 4. I'm going to suggest that for this morning, and uh, for the purpose of kind of categorizing a little bit and maybe being able to remember, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> being able to remember a little bit better what the book is actually about, I'm going to suggest that this, that we start by, here's what I'm going to call it, uh, identifying the problem. So that's going to be the first thing that I'm going to invite you to try and catch as we go through verses uh, 3 and 4 is see if you can kind of peg the problem. Let me read for you verses 3 to 4. Actually, just kind of, we'll go, just go halfway through verse 4. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share... I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men. We're going to stop right there very briefly. Now actually, so I asked you to identify the problem. Uh, actually, he does in these, this little section, he actually does quite a bit more than just identify the problem. It's interesting to me how he starts here in verse 3. He tells them that his intent in writing this letter or beginning this letter was to write them a letter and just talk to them about the joy and the blessing and the wonder of salvation, how great it is to be saved, and how many are the blessings of walking with God and basking in the amazing love of God, and how wonderful it is to know that you are saved by God through Jesus and his death on the cross, and on and on. That is what I was planning to write to you about, is what he says. 
Now, I think it's fair to say that we have lots of that kind of writing in, uh, in, contemporary Christian, in the contemporary Christian world in this day and age also. And we probably, for the most part, we kind of categorize them and call them inspirational writing or inspirational devotionals. And, and we've got a, a, a fair bit of that type of writing. Sarah Young has written some beautiful devotional stuff, Jesus Today, Jesus Calling. I know many of you have read some of those and maybe still are in the habit of reading one or two of those a day or per week. And they are inspirational and they're comforting and they're truly help to pick you up and kind of keep you going. Um, they are true also. I'm not in any way being here today being negative toward that type of writing. You will find other stuff like, uh, you know, stuff from Lisa Turkhurst or Joris Meyer or Beth Moore. Great stuff about how much we are loved and cherished by God and the freedom we can enjoy in our daily walk with him. Good inspirational stuff, and Jude is not against that. Let me be very clear here. He doesn't anywhere say that it's not good to write about that. It's not good to read about that. He doesn't say that at all. That's not what it's all about. In fact, he was intending to write to them about this. That was his original intent. But then as he gets ready to begin writing, or he's envisioning how he's going to write and what he's going to write about, somehow he feels God nudging him to write to them about something else to take them in another direction. For today, he says, in a sense, I can hear him in a paraphrased way saying, for today, we need to talk about something else. We need to talk about this in another, or take this in another direction. Not exactly what I actually had originally planned. And so he changes direction. And he says that today, for right now, what this group of people most need is not another reminder about the amazing and wonderful part of God's love and grace and mercy and salvation. Actually, if we're going to be real honest, what these people need today, right now, they need a challenge. These people need a challenge, and we're going to flesh out that challenge in just a moment. Because there is a problem. And that problem was that there was ungodliness slipping in among them. The wording here in the middle of verse 4 is godless men have slipped or uh, godless men have secretly slipped in among you. And for the purpose of application here this morning, I want to suggest that what we're going to say or what we're going to, how we're going to paraphrase that is ungodliness has quietly slipped in among you. Almost all ungodliness actually does that. It quietly slips in someplace in our lives or in our, uh, into our families or into our church or into our community. It quietly slips. It finds a way to enter kind of, the devil is far too smart to bombard us head-on with the full reality of a temptation. When you are strong in your faith, and you're constantly reading your Bible, and you're spending time in good Christian fellowship, and you're on track in your relationships with people, and you're living out your faith at work, etc., etc., there's no way the devil can just walk up to you and offer you an open, full, reality-type uh, package of temptation or sin and expect that you're going to grab it. You're far too strong. You're, you would say, no, not a chance. That's ugly. I don't want that done. And so he has to find ways to quietly 
slip it in there someplace. And that's exactly what, that's not a new phenomenon, it's not something that we're dealing with that civilizations in the past have not dealt with. This is how, this has been the devil's tactic all along. You can see it right here. Jude identifies it. Something has quietly or secretly slipped in. So, so that's the problem. That's what's happened here and that's their problem. And Jude identifies the problem and then Jude presents the challenge. So instead of a nice feel-good reminder about the love and grace and mercy of God, there's time for that. Absolutely, there's nothing wrong with that. Please let me be very clear about that. But today, right now, right here, Jude says, we need to change direction. We need to talk about something else. Instead of that type of letter, he senses it's time for a challenge and a warning. The challenge is in the middle of verse 3, and I hope you saw it because of my introduction. The challenge for me, the way we're going to verbalize it here for today is, the challenge is to contend for the faith. By the time we're done here this morning, you're going to be tired of hearing me say that. Contend for the faith. But I hope you're going to understand a little bit more what it means, and I hope you're going to be inspired to kind of do some analysis and check out and to think about how can I be actively involved in contending for the faith. One writer put it this way. In the Greek language, this word was used to describe a general giving orders to the army. Hence, the atmosphere, the tone of this letter is actually quite military. Jude had started to write a quiet devotional letter about salvation, but the Spirit led him to put down his harp and sound the trumpet. I liked the way the writer put that. The epistle of Jude is a call to arms. Contend for the faith. As I was prepping this week, these words just kept jumping off the page at me. Contend for the faith. See, the word contend, first thing we need to take note of here, um, not only uh, you know, are we going to highlight the science teachers here this morning, Jerry, uh, thank you for you know, doing this experiment with, uh, with kids 12 years ago. Uh, I'd also like to highlight English teachers. Thank you, English teachers. I don't think English has never been, no. Um, English, some, there may be some English teachers here. Fantastic. Um, so this word contend, and this is, this is important, this word contend is a verb. What does that mean? What's the first word that comes to your mind when I say the word verb? Action. Thank you. As much as all of us are not that great in, you know, at the grammar part of English necessarily, but most of us know that the word verb means action. It means activity. So when we speak about contending for the faith, this is not, we're right now, and I'm, again, I'm not dissing the other side, but we're not right now talking about quiet meditation, basking in the sunshine of God's grace. Not right now. Right now we're talking about contending for the faith. Being actively involved in getting something done. Let's keep going. The definition of the word contend is struggle to surmount or struggle to rise above a difficulty or a danger or an opposition. The dictionary told me that synonyms for the word which means the same, words that mean the same thing or help us to understand, 
Synonyms for the word contend are to face, to grapple with, to deal with, to take on, to put, uh, sorry, to pit oneself against. Another writer said the Greek word here is an athletic term that gives us our English word agonize. It is a picture of a devoted athlete competing in the Greek games and stretching his nerves and muscles to his very limit to reach his full potential and to accomplish a win. And so if the Winnipeg Jets are indeed contenders, it means that they have a legitimate chance of surmounting or rising above or overcoming all the obstacles and the opposition and becoming the eventual overall winners. The ability to overcome and rise above their opposition makes someone a contender. And so the challenge here is to contend for the faith. It's what Jude calls us to here. He's calling, challenging his readers, and, and I, I'd like to say challenging all of the, those of us that follow to contend for the faith. And I want to I throw out the challenge here this morning to contend for your own faith, to contend for the faith of your family, to contend for the faith of the church. Moms and dads, I want to I challenge you to contend for the faith of your children. Be actively pitting yourself against the opposition that is trying to slip ungodliness into your home and into your life and into your family and into your church and into your community. How are you going to do that? Well, it seems fairly basic that if you are going to be a legitimate contender, uh, the first thing that you need to do is you need to identify your opposition. Uh, th there's very few sports teams, I, I don't think true contenders for sure not, true sports teams that would, you know, they, they know they've got a game coming up and, and they really honestly don't care. They don't even check the schedule to see who their opposition is going to be. Uh, we're, we're just going to go out there and we're just going to do our thing and we're just going to not worry at all about who we're playing against, who the opposition is. No, 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 no. The first thing we want to do is we want to find out who's our opposition. Who are we playing against? And I believe if we are going to contend for the faith, we need to understand who is, what is our opposition. Who are we up against? Who are we pitting ourselves against? And so as you sift through the next 15 or so verses here in Jude, he names one opposing player after another from the opposing team. Uh, opposing players who are quietly trying to slip in among them and rattle and derail their faith. And so this may be a little bit unique, but I'm going to verbalize uh, these opposition players exactly the way they are verbalized here. Some of them, I think, are going to very quickly have modern-day ap uh, applications. Uh, some of them you may wonder a little bit about. I wonder what the modern-day application of that particular opposing player is, and that's okay. It's okay for us to scratch our heads a little bit and wonder about that. But let's name the opposing players that are named here in Jude in the next 15 or so verses. He starts in the middle of verse 4. He starts by naming the first one, and he calls him out right off the bat. And probably many of us can understand why this one would top the list. Uh, he starts out with 
immorality. Immorality uh, is one that is slipping in, and I'm going to be very honest here today, I believe that sex outside of marriage has become too common among us. I believe that pornography has become much too common among us. Immorality. We need to fight against the opposing player. Along with immorality, he identifies a way of thinking that wants to slip in among us and maybe a way of thinking that kind of has a little bit to do with each one of these opposing players. And that way of thinking is, well, the grace of God becomes a license for doing wrong. The grace of God will cover it already. Why stress about it so much? God's grace has got it covered. Yeah, I know, I know, it's probably not a great idea, but I'm sure God's grace has got me covered. Truth of the matter is, God's grace does have you covered. But it's a problem when we think that way. It's a problem when it becomes a license for wrongdoing. It's a way of thinking that has slipped in among these people here. Let's keep going. As you keep going, you jump down a couple of verses, and he kind of goes into a bit of a list again when we hit verse 8. They pollute their own bodies, putting stuff into your bodies that's actually not good for you. Certain food, maybe, or too much of certain food, or perhaps it's, it's drugs or alcohol or whatever else. Maybe even some prescribed medication. I'm not sure. We need to take a good look at that from time to time also. Polluting their own bodies, rejecting authority. And I go, ah, really? Ugh. Did he have to put that in there? Slandering celestial beings. That's an interesting one to me. And it's one of those that I ponder about. And I wonder, what's the modern day application of that one? And if you have a good idea, I'd invite you to email it to me or come talk to me during the course of the week. Because I'm still scratching my head a little bit on what the modern day application might be of that little note about slandering celestial beings. And then he goes on to a very interesting one. They speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. I had to stop there for a few minutes when I was going through this list and thinking about it. How often, and I asked myself the question, which I didn't really like the answer to, how often do I speak abusively about things that I actually don't really understand? How often do I speak about authority? We just mentioned rejecting authority. How often do I speak about authority in a degrading way when I really don't understand how difficult their job is. I remember being in the U.S. on an MDS trip. Uh, one of our famous MDS team members has been with the team for the past quite a few years. He has made it his mission the last several years to find out from everybody in the U.S. what they think about Donald Trump. You can't enter a restaurant or a hotel or a gas station without him quizzing the servers about their opinions on Trump. And as you might expect, those opinions vary from one extreme to the other extreme and everything in between. But the best answer I heard someone give him when he came up with a question that he thought was somewhat provocative about what this person thought about Trump. This was down in Texas. We were sitting on the seashore in a little restaurant and the waiter looked at him and said, he's probably doing a better job than I could do. I thought that was kind of a cool answer. I'm not about to talk about something that I really don't understand, basically, is what I kind of heard the waiter say. His job is probably way bigger than I understand it to be. It's kind of a breath of fresh air. See, we really have no clue how difficult that job is, and yet we have all the answers. 
me included, not just in politics, but in sports, coaches, what they should be doing, shouldn't be doing, referees, where they all made the wrong calls, how they should have handled that or that, employers, business owners, management, the army, the RCMP, teachers, conservation officers, I had to throw that one in there because of a little unique situation in our community a little while ago. We have so much advice for all of them. And we know what they should do and shouldn't do and how they should do it or shouldn't do it. And that's very interesting because this past week, I think it was Tuesday afternoon or morning, I went on a pretty good rampage in the coffee shop myself, exactly about some of this kind of stuff. And then I go back to my office and I start studying this and here's what I read. And I'm embarrassed. They talk abusively against whatever they do not understand. Ah, I know, I know, you know, probably not a great idea, but I'm sure God's grace has gotten me covered. No, understand your opposition. Contend for the faith. Then he goes on and lists a few more. They eat among you and pretend nothing is wrong. They are shepherds who feed only themselves. I, I, I hear selfishness, crazy selfishness. They're grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves. They only speak well of other people to their own advantage. Narcissistic is a word that comes to my mind. People who can only think about themselves and they can really only see themselves and everybody else is just there kind of to somehow um, um, contribute to who they are and who they want to be. And then he uses an interesting little uh, additional comment there, makes an interesting additional comment. Uh, they're also people who divide you. People who are divisive in their comments. And sometimes maybe even divisive in the way that they listen to you. They let you get away with. Or you let people get away with making divisive comments and you don't kind of challenge them and hold them accountable for those types of comments. People who divide you. That's the list that Jude comes up with here for these readers. That's what was happening in their world. I'm convinced that if Jude was writing to us, he would probably have modern day applications for almost all of these. And he probably would add a couple of other um, uh, uh, ungodly qualities or activities that are quietly kind of trying to slip their way among us, into us, or among us. I welcome you to try and identify what some of those might be. That's the opposition, and the question is, are you ready to take up the challenge to contend for the faith? Are you ready and willing to stand up and face your opposition and grapple with your opposition and pit yourself against your opposition? So you identify your opposition. And then I think the second um, critical step is to understand your opposition. I heard a sports announcer use that phrase just this past week as I was watching a sports game. He said something to the effect of, you need to understand your opposition. Totally makes sense in the sports world, particularly now we kind of think about football. It's kind of the in sport right now. They work all week to come up with a game plan. And the defense uh, on one team studies the offense of the other team and, and vice versa. And they watch game tapes and they talk about the strengths of the opposition. How are they going to try and get us? What kind of plays are they going to try and run? And then, they, and then you look at yourself and you try and understand your own weaknesses. Uh, very critical also. Very important to try and understand your own. I bet you what they're going to try and do is they're going to try and take advantage of my, our weakness in this area. And you, and, you, and you strategize and you work at understanding your opposition. And you work at understanding yourself. And then you try and put those two together. And then you begin to come up with a strategy so that you can contend. 
so that you can pit yourself against your opposition. I don't know if it's true or not, but I read someplace that Billy Graham, when he traveled, he never had hotel rooms registered to his name. With all that was happening in the world of high-profile Christian speakers and immorality, he understood that he was a target. He understood his opposition. And then actually when he went to his room, he never went to his room for the first time by himself. He understood that his opposition wanted nothing more than to get him to break down morally. We need to understand our opposition. And we need to make preparations so that we will be able to contend in the game. I heard of another businessman who traveled and he understood his own weakness. And the moment he checked into his hotel room at the front desk, the first thing he did is he asked them to disconnect the TV in his room. And many of them objected and he said, well, the option is very simple. Either you disconnect the TV in the room or I'm going to another hotel. He understood his weakness. He understood his weakness and he understood the opposition's target and the opposition's way of trying to get him. And he decided he was going to be stronger. He was going to pit himself against the opposition. Take time to understand your opposition. Take time to understand yourself. Men, women, old, young, grandmas, grandpas, moms, dads, let's contend for the faith. Oh, I know, I know. Often we're not quite sure what that means and we're not quite sure exactly how to do that in this situation, that situation. What does it mean? How am I going to do it? What does God want me? How do I handle this? Well, is it fair to say that there are many times when anyone that is a contender does not know exactly what to do? And they make mistakes in the process. But they don't sit down on their laurels until it becomes clear. They get up and they contend again. They get up and they try again. They move forward. They try one thing. They try another thing. They try a third thing. They try a fourth thing. If you are a true contender, they stay engaged in the game. That's part of the definition of being a contender. Is staying engaged in the game until we're going to get it. Not giving up. Contend for the faith. I especially want to, for a brief moment here, throw out a challenge to us dads. Because I think this resonates with us. If we allow it to. Dads, we need to contend for the faith of our families. In the face of opposition. I really appreciate the way Emerson Egrich defines the spirit of a man, especially a husband and father. He says that we all struggle with being all that we should be and often we feel inadequate and we feel like we never get it right. But he says, almost every man will risk his physical life to protect his wife and children and that is no small matter. It has been placed into the very nature of us men to protect with our lives the lives of our families. And I believe every dad here would nod in agreement. I would. I would. If my kids and my wife were in danger, I'd put my life on the line for them. It's in our hearts. Today I want to call us men to be every bit as passionate about doing that spiritually for our children. For our families. Contend for their faith. I know we're going to get it wrong. I know we're going to make mistakes. I know there's many situations where we're not going to know how to do it and how to do it right and how to do it well. And the devil is going to tempt us to feel inadequate and to go and sit down in the corner and to hang our head in shame. 
In Jesus' name, I stand against that. We've been called to stand up and contend for the faith. For the faith of our children, for the faith of our families, for the faith of our community, for the faith of our church. Men, we got to stand up. And we got to contend for the faith. Here Jude goes back into history and he gives them some well-known examples from the Old Testament. At least to his readers, they were well-known examples. Of times and places where God's people fell into significant evil traps and they became ensnared and trapped and they suffered judgment. Because they did not contend. Because they did not overcome. They did actively and effectively, they did not actively and effectively pit themselves against the opposition. Jude calls us to contend for the faith. Because there are always consequences if we don't. Sometimes in today's world, our emphasis on the grace of God, back to the beginning, where I use that as one of the first things that Jude actually mentions. Sometimes our, our emphasis on the grace of God and using the grace of God as a license for doing evil, we, as a result of that, we struggle with this word that's used several times here in this book of Jude, uh, the word judgment. He listed at least half a dozen Old Testament examples of places where evil and ungodliness slipped in among the people and there was significant judgment as a result. And Jude says, you want to avoid that. You want to contend for the faith. You want to avoid judgment, whatever exactly that means. You want to avoid it. And then you check verses 12 to 13 and he uses illustrations from nature to give another good reason for contending for the faith. And I think, again, we can all kind of uh, latch on to this one. And, and if you read it and if you look at these examples that he gives or these illustrations that he gives from nature in verses 12 to 13, I would say we want to contend for the faith because we want to avoid or we want to step aside from a useless existence. And he talks about clouds without rain. They promise something and then they disappoint. Autumn trees without fruit. They've been sucking nutrients all along, but they give nothing back. Wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Wandering stars out of orbit, uncontrollable, on a collision course, destined to blow up and disappear into the darkest night without a trace. Simply gone from existence, nothing of value left. And he says, you don't want to be like that. You want to contend for the faith because you want your existence here on this earth to matter. And so contend for the faith. Do something of value, of significance, so that you have something to leave behind when you are done. Something that will last. Something that will really count for something. Contend for the faith. It's a unique little book. This book of Jude. And I hope there is something in here this morning that kind of caught your attention. I hope there was an aspect of, of the opposition that you took a little bit personally. Yeah, I know, I know. That's one that I struggle with. And then I hope that you take up the challenge to contend, contend for the faith in the face of adversity, in the face of opposition. Contend for your faith. Contend for the faith of your family, the faith of your community. And I'm going to put out a plea again. Contend for the faith of your church. Amen.